0: Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of our new series, the AE War Report. This podcast, along with all other AE podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the tools, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at megearcode.com and Amazon as well. Use code AND2021 for a discount added to your cart on the Mission Essential Gear website. Also, check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at FreelancersConflictBlog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or us a coffee at co-fi.com slash analyze educate that is ko fi.com and lastly a huge thank you to kyle larson again for all his help recently kyle reads first on occasion and you could check out some of his articles at emmigearco.com slash blogs slash news and with that being said we will get started getting into things i am uh, going to rehash a few things just for um any Buddy, that's new listening to this, just a, a brief overview of what's going on. Again, I said this the last couple of times, but please keep in mind, I will use the term invasion from time to time because uh, many observers of this conflict, myself included, consider the Russo-Ukrainian war as starting eight years ago with the annexation of Crimea and subsequent occupation of parts of eastern U- Ukraine by Russian-backed separatists. I don't use invasion to diminish what's going on. It is very clearly a war. Um, but again, I, I view this as a, uh, as a very long war. This is not something that's been going on for a month. It's been going on for eight years, right? But the invasion is a very specific phase of this war that has been going on for a month, month and a half. The invasion is now in its 46th day. Martial law has been declared in the country over 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country's refugees to their neighboring countries with 2.5 million alone going to Poland. Men aged 18 to 60 have been banned from leaving the country as they anticipate being mobilized into the Ukrainian security forces. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have either volunteered or been conscripted into service. This includes politicians and celebrities. Boxing champion brothers Vitaly and Vladimir Klitschko have both joined Kiev's territorial defense component. Vitaly is also the current mayor of the capital city. Former President Petro Poroshenko has also joined the same component component, excuse me, and apparently heads his own battalion. Foreign fighters have flowed into Ukraine to join the International Legion of the Territorial Defense Forces. Volunteers have come from many different countries, including Japan, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Brazil, Spain, and plenty of other countries. Russian forces have been facing numerous issues since the start of the invasion, including but not limited to logistical issues. Uh, That includes fuel and food, Poor infantry tactics, uh, poor immediate reactions to contact with Ukrainian troops, uh, failure to gain air supremacy, and maybe even still to this point, failure to gain air superiority, and questionable accuracy of guided munitions such as ballistic and cruise missiles. We're also seeing shortages of guided munitions, which... um, Something I should have been clear about before, that's actually a problem that the Russian military has just really always had in general. They don't have nearly as many guided munitions as, um, say, the United States does. They, they have a very limited supply, so they really have to use them wisely. Russia had captured the nuclear power plants in Chernobyl and Zaporizhia, the latter of which is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Ukrainian forces have since captured Chernobyl and the neighboring town of Pripyat after Russian troops withdrew from multiple areas in Ukraine. The Russian withdrawal comes as Moscow is attempting to reframe the main objectives of the invasion in the eyes of the public. After failing to reach many of its top objectives, Russia redefined its mission in Ukraine to focusing towards capturing the oblasts of Donetsk and Luhansk, commonly referred to as the Donbass region. Kherson is still the only major city captured by Russian forces at this point. Ukrainian forces have reestablished effective control over all of Sumy Oblast, all the way to the Russian border, and from the Oblast of Kiev and Chernihiv all the way to the border of Belarus. Again, that coincides with this Russian uh, withdrawal that we saw in the north. Some mopping operations in those areas are still ongoing due to small Russian units being left behind by the main force as it withdrew, but again... Ukraine uh, pretty much controls all that territory at this point in time. The city of Mariupol in Oblast is still under siege from Russian forces and has been under siege for over a month. The Russian military is claiming that it has taken the entire city center, but that hasn't yet been independently confirmed. However, they have at least taken a, a large portion of it. Heavy fighting is continuing in the southern portion of Kharkiv Oblast and Luhansk Oblast. Ukrainian forces have made at least two successful counterattacks. I'm sorry, had made at least two successful counterattacks in those areas in Izium and Rybizhny, respectfully. However, Russian troops once again retook that area in Izium. The United States has sent billions of dollars worth of military equipment and aid to Ukraine since the invasion began on February 24th. This includes uh, 1,400 Stinger man portable air defense systems, 5,000 Javelin anti-tank guided missile systems, 7,000 other types of anti-armor systems, switchblade loitering munitions, aka suicide drones, and 50 million rounds of various types of ammunition. You can find a full list on our Instagram at AnalyzeEducate. And on March 24th, a Ukrainian missile strike hit the port of Berdyansk on the Black Sea coast. Russian forces have been using the port city as a major logistics hub since its capture captured by Russian Marines on February 27th. An alligator-class landing ship, BDK-55, the Saratov, was destroyed while docked in the port. Two Rapucha-class landing ships, the Caesar-Kunikov SDK-64 and the now, our SDK-46 were both damaged in the attack, but were able to sail away. And now no number of Russian sailors were killed. Uh, it's believed that casualties are in the hundreds, but we really don't know. The attack came after a reporter with Russia Today published a video of himself showing off Russian naval vessels and offloaded equipment at the port. So think of that what you will. On March 31st, former South Ossetian President Edward Kokiri claimed that 300 South Ossetian soldiers reportedly returned to their garrison at the 4th Guards military base in Tiskanvali from combat zones in Ukraine. He said that the soldiers left Ukraine because they felt as if they had been left for dead in the country. Kokiri asked people not to jump to conclusions and added that the combat readiness of troops should be investigated before deploying them into combat areas. Current South Ossetian President Anatoly Bibilov recently ordered some of his forces in Ukraine to assist Russian troops in the country. In reality, though, these are officially Russian soldiers, as South Ossetia's military was partially integrated into the Russian Armed Forces back in 2017. South Ossetia, if you don't know, is a partially recognized state in between Russia and Georgia it, along with Abkhazia, won de facto independence from Georgia as a result of the latter's defeat in the 2008 Russo-Georgian War. The country is currently recognized by five UN member states, Russia, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Nauru, and Syria. In addition, a number of states with limited recognition themselves have recognized South Ossetia as well. That includes the Luhansk People's Republic, a prominent uh, belligerent in this war, obviously. South Ossetia recently announced that it would soon be holding a referendum on whether or not to be annexed by Russia, and that would be a very drastic move if Moscow went along with such an annexation. So we'll keep an eye on that, of course. On April 1st, two Ukrainian Air Force MI-24 attack helicopters flew into Russian airspace at low altitudes and struck a fuel depot causing a large fire to break out. The armaments used were reportedly S-8 rockets. Ukrainian Security Council Secretary Alexei Denilov officially denied involvement. However, evidence via open sources seems to show otherwise, and the Ukrainian government did wait a good amount of time to either officially uh, confirm or deny their involvement in this attack for a very long time. They just wouldn't uh, wouldn't say as to either. So... Think of that what you will. On April 4th, President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the recaptured city of Bukha in Kiev Oblast. He went there to visit some truly horrific scenes in the city that were revealed after Russian forces withdrew. At least 270 civilians were found buried in a mass grave and dozens more civilians were found lying dead in the streets of the city. Some of them had their hands bound behind their backs and appeared to have been executed while laying face down on the ground. The severity of the Buka massacre, as some are calling it, cannot be overstated. As a result of the massacre and other human rights violations throughout the invasion, the United Nations voted to remove Russia from the UN Human Rights Council on April 7th. The bell tally was 93 to 24 with 58 abstentions. Some countries that voted against include. China, Iran, Syria, Cuba, and North Korea. Russia is only the second country to ever been removed from the Council after Libya was removed in 2011. Russia responded by saying that the vote was, quote, politically motivated and it had already quit the Council before the vote even began. On April 5th, roughly 270 Ukrainian Marines from the 36th Marine Infantry Brigade's 501st Marine Infantry Battalion surrendered to Russian forces in Mariupol. On April 8th, a Russian Tochka-U missile strike hit a train station in Kramatorsk in Donetsk Oblast, killing at least 50 people, including five children. Civilians at the station were there to board trains to evacuate Donetsk in the anticipation of renewed Russian offensives in eastern Ukraine. Russia has officially denied responsibility and claims Ukraine staged a false flag attack. A lot of you made the argument that Ukraine had to have been behind this attack because Russia no longer uses Toshka-U missiles. However, that's just not true at all. While Russia has had Tochka u missiles out of active service for a long time, it kept many of them in reserve and has started using them in Ukraine. And we could confirm that via open sources. We've seen Russia transporting Tochka-U missiles within Russian territory using invasion markings, notably the V marking. There's plenty of open source resources out there. Russia is using these missiles, not only Ukraine. Also, the Russian Defense Ministry made online statements that it had successfully targeted railway infrastructure in Donetsk with missiles within hours of that strike. Then, as soon as reports of civilian deaths started flowing in, the statements were deleted. Think of that what you will, if any of you have any evidence or general information that port that points, excuse me, to Ukraine being responsible for this, please send it my way. A lot of you have said that you have sources that uh, show Ukraine is behind this attack. Send it my way. I've asked you to. You haven't sent me anything. So, you know how to get a hold of me. Instagram, Twitter at Analyze, Educate. If you have something, please feel free to send it my way, but at this time, I've seen nothing to suggest that it wasn't a Russian attack, so I'm going off that. Also on April 8th, BBC reported that the Russian government had placed Army General Alexander Dvornikov in charge of the special military operation in Ukraine. General Dvornikov currently serves as the commander of the Southern Military District in Russia, BBC reporter Gordon Carrera said the decision was made due to a lack of coordination in different commands of the Russian military throughout the operation. The unnamed Western official that Carrera quoted in his reporting believes that the timing is important. This official thinks that Russia appointed a general that they believe can make some serious gains ahead of the celebration on May 9th, marking Victory Day, the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. That is a very, uh, very important date over there. Dvornikov is a hero of the Russian Federation and a 44-year veteran of both the Soviet Army and the Russian Ground Forces. His previous commands include the 5th Combined Arms Red Banner Army, the Southern Military District, which he very briefly commanded in 2012. And he was the first commander of Russian Armed Forces in Syria, so he is experienced. And now for some uh, general updates, I will leave you guys with a situation report from the Institute for the Study of War. Russia will struggle to gather a large enough combat capable mechanized force needed to operate in the Donbass in the coming months. Again, this is coming from ISW. The U.S. Department of Defense assesses that Russia has lost anywhere from 15 to 20 percent of its combat power in Ukraine, however this figure is misleading according to isw it takes into account russian soldiers that have been killed but it does not take into account those that, that have been wounded or separated from their units for any other reasons this means that the do that using dod sources excuse me losses of combat and power for russia can actually be higher but it's really hard to determine that sort of thing Many Russian battalion tactical groups that were active in Kiev Oblast have been rendered combat ineffective due to high losses. They need weeks, if not months, to be backfilled with combat replacements and new vehicles and equipment. However, due to many of them being deployed to eastern Ukraine already, or at least gearing up for redeployment, ISW assesses that decimated and demoralized units will be folded into one another for coming offensives in the east. Also, due to a flawed mobilization plan, Russia will likely have very few, if any, units to keep in reserve during these large-scale offensives. Russia recently ordered a draft of 130,000 conscripts into the military. This is not significant because this is a routine biannual draft, happens twice a year for the Russian military. Completely normal. However, Russia has also called up 60,000 reservists for active duty, presumably to be used in Ukraine. If Russia wants to benefit from these additional 200,000 troops, it would take months to get them adequately trained and equipped and put into their combat units, which means they wouldn't be in combat zones until late summer at the very earliest However, if Russia decided to rush them into deployment, they would likely add very little strength to the Russian effort and would probably take some pretty high casualties, which would be very counterproductive, right? The Ukrainian government claims that it destroyed 20 battalion tactical groups and rendered another 40 combat ineffective, for what it's worth. It's hard to verify, just throwing that out there. ISW is continuing to gather reports on low morale within the Russian ranks on April 6th, a Russian Telegram channel reported that 60 paratroopers from the 76 Guards Airborne Division refused to fight in Ukraine and were thus dismissed from duty. Something like that is also hard to verify. Again, these are just reports just giving you guys a little bit of extra information. But with that being said, we will move on to the question and answer portion. You guys had some questions for me to uh, answer on Instagram, and we'll hop into those. So the first thing you guys wanted me to address was some human rights, violations and war crimes that have been committed by Ukrainian troops. And uh, before I get into that, I I just want to note that, um, you shouldn't believe that Ukraine hasn't committed any human rights violations or war crimes. It, this stuff happens in war all the time. And keep in mind they were invaded. This isn't me justifying their actions, but they were invaded. These soldiers are, are going to be pissed off and they're going to take out their anger, um, in places they shouldn't. Right. And I mean, war crimes are unfortunate, unfortunately they're a norm in war. They happen in, in every war and they're committed by all sides. Um, and you, you shouldn't believe that there is a side that hasn't committed some war crimes or human rights violations. Unfortunately, it, again, it happens. All the time and uh unfortunately it always will that's just that's how it goes but there was a video of ukrainian servicemen shooting multiple russian prisoners of war in the legs and in the knees um that the video has been verified this incident it has been confirmed presumably the person that posted it is the ukrainian soldier that filmed it this wasn't a leak or anything this This unit wanted this to get out on the internet for whatever reason, but that's just one instance of war crimes, shooting unarmed prisoners of war with their hands tied behind their backs. If you want to justify that, that's on you. I'm not telling you what to think about it. I am telling you that legally speaking, it is a war crime. You cannot shoot prisoners that are unarmed have their hands tied behind their backs that is a war crime if you want to justify it again it's on you I'm not telling you what to think i'm just telling you that that is what it is it's a war crime by definition there's another instance the new york times verified it, a video that was filmed on april 2nd showing ukrainian soldiers from the georgian national legion executing a wounded russian soldier from i'm sorry in Dmitrievka. i think i said that right it's a village south of Buka. In the video, three other dead Russian soldiers can be seen, including one, at least one, with a head wound. So again, another verified case of war crimes. Executing at least one wounded, unarmed prisoner of war. Probably three others. So there is another instance. On uh, March 14th, there was a Tochka-U missile strike in Donetsk City. That was... Uh, Ukraine claimed that was a false flag attack by Russia. Russia claimed that the strike killed 23 civilians. It, it's really hard to tell. There's not a whole lot of information that I can find on this. Um, yeah, again, both sides blame each other. Both sides also use this same type of missile. Do keep in mind, though, that Donetsk City has been controlled by the Donetsk People's Republic, backed by Russia, since... 2014, it's been controlled by them for eight years or or maybe 2015 early. So seven years at least. Um, Again, not a whole lot of information on this. I'm sure you guys will draw up your own conclusions or if you want to do your own research, feel free. That's just a reported instance. And lastly, the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine noted at least 55, I'm sorry, 45, excuse me, potential cases of abuse and torture by Ukrainian civilians and members of the Territorial Defense Forces on suspected pro-Russian Ukrainian citizens. That organization also documented two cases where civilians were killed in Ukrainian-controlled areas for being suspected of reporting Russia. So, again, both sides are committing war crimes and human rights violations, not just Russia. Something to keep in mind. Second question, could Russia assault Kiev again in the near future? Probably not, um, especially not with this new focus in the East. I mean, they've focused, all of their forces in Ukraine are being focused in, the, well, most of them are being focused in the East. You still have some in the South uh, fighting near Mykolaiv, but that's really it other than they make a live front if you even want to call it that all forces are focusing on the east whether they're coming from uh coming up from crimea or if they're coming from the russian border from the east right um an assault on kiev in the near future it's just really not going to happen these units desperately need combat replacements and they desperately need um equipment replacements like i spoke about before and Ukraine has already retaken their positions that they have in Kiev and Chernihiv all the way to the border. They've retaken border posts. They're certainly going to dig in more than they were before the invasion. They're certainly going to beef up their defenses. It's Russia could try and assault Kiev in the near future, um, but I don't think it would go well for them. Certainly not any better than it did this last time, and I don't even really think they're going to try it in the first place. It just doesn't make sense. Nothing good will come out out of it for them. If anything, that will just be a win for Ukraine because they kill more Russians and destroy more Russian tanks. It's it's not going to happen, at least not in the near future. I mean, things could always change, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, uh, not coming anytime soon. Third question. Will Putin ever respond to NATO members sending lethal aid to Ukraine? Um, I mean, maybe, but I guess the question is really how does he do that? He's not going to hit weapon shipments before they cross into the Ukrainian border because, I mean, that's an attack on a NATO member that triggers Article 5, and then you have a NATO versus Russia war. That's There's no way that's going to happen. You can try and hit the weapon shipments as soon as they cross the border into Ukraine, but A, you got to find them, and B you got to make sure you hit the mark because if you're a couple kilometers off, then again, you hit NATO territory and full scale war happens. So yeah, it's, it's just kind of dicey. I mean, they can respond, but how, um, yeah, there's, there's only so many things that they could do to respond to lethal aid. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place as far as that goes. For how is Russia? I'm sorry, how is Ukraine shifting gears to respond to Russia's changing objectives focused on the east? Um, well, we have seen some troop movements going towards the east, but I haven't I haven't seen which specific units. I haven't seen troop numbers. I just know that redeployments have been happening. We have seen. Counteroffensives going on in the east that I spoke about earlier in uh, Izium and other areas around there. We've seen renewed counteroffensives in Mykolaiv in the south um, and Kherson Oblast also in the south. Um, but as far as that goes, I, I don't have a lot of information. I just assume that since Russia is shifting gears and focusing on the east, I assume that Ukraine would do the same because that is where the majority of fighting has been ever since um, the Russian withdrawal from the North. And it will continue to be where the majority of the fighting will be until Russia achieves its objectives. If they do. Right. Question number five, how long would have Ukraine lasted without the quote West weapon systems? That's just, it's hard to answer. Um, it's hard to answer because we've been giving them weapons and training, um, and advising for, for so long. I mean, really since the early days of this war seven, eight years ago, it's just so hard to, it's so hard to tell. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian military, when this war began in 2014, early 2015, it was so different from how it is now. I mean, it was very, um, soviet-esque you'll even hear uh u.s officers that trained the ukrainian military around that time they'll speak about this as well very soviet-esque um very old equipment their training was outdated their leadership strategies were outdated the way they communicated between each other was outdated um the the us and our allies we really put in a lot of work into training the Ukrainian military and then eventually equipping them as well. So that is just, it's such a hard question to answer because if Ukraine didn't have our weapons or our advising or training, the situation itself would be completely different. And who knows if this war, I'm sorry, if this invasion would have even happened because the war would have gone so differently seven, eight years ago. There's just really no good way to answer that. Number six, how will foreigners fighting for both Ukraine and Russia fight in the upcoming Donbass region offensives? Um, well I have seen I have seen reports from Western volunteers themselves saying that they're going to the Donbass. I imagine that some of them will be sent along with any Ukrainian national U- units that are sent over there Uh, as far as foreign fighters for Russia and the uh, separatist republics goes. Um, I really don't know. I imagine they'll just be integrated with everybody else. Um, I think that's definitely something we'll see in the future when these offensives do happen. These guys love posting on social media, especially the Western volunteers. Um, so this is definitely, we'll see, uh, in the upcoming offensives if if they're there they'll post about it on social media if you don't see anything on social media then i guess there's only a limited amount of them there but uh something notable about that uh Ford observations group most of you guys probably know them veteran or veteran company i don't even know how you define them at this point but they've been fighting in ukraine uh, ever since the invasion began, or I guess even a little bit before the invasion began. And, uh, they posted that they were on the Donetsk front line a couple days ago. So yeah, maybe that answers your question a little bit. Number seven, what will future global trade in the black sea look like? That's really hard to tell right now. Um, First off, I am not a global trade expert at all. I don't know that much about it. Not. I don't even know if I necessarily have an area of expertise, but if I did, that wouldn't be it. Um, but I can say it's probably hard to even tell right now because the war is, I mean, it's still full steam ahead, right? Um, and Ukraine still controls some of their coastline. They really control... Um, from Nikolaev all the way to the Romanian border. All that, much of their coastline in the Black Sea. Um, And Russia obviously controls the rest of it. There have been uh, plenty of reports that Russia is mining the Black Sea. Um, And obviously, if those mines aren't taken care of, that can be a big issue. Um, And then we also saw a, a decent amount of civilian vessels being shelled or just accidentally fired upon during the beginning of the invasion by um, both the Ukrainian and Russian navies. So, yeah, trade in the Black Sea is uh, contentious, uh, to say the very least. And, yeah, how how that goes in the future really depends on how this war goes and if they're able to get the mines out of the Black Sea, right? That's obviously going to be a big issue. Question number eight, what's going on in Mariupol? Okay, well, Russian forces are uh, present in most of central Mariupol, as I talked about earlier. And from reading maps from the ISW, it looks like Ukrainian forces are boxed into three separate areas. The Zovstavol, Zov, oh, I mispronounced that, Zovstal, metallurgical combine in the city's southern portion, excuse me. uh, Also a large area to the north of the city's port and a large area in the northern part of the city separately. Those are the three areas Ukrainian troops appear to be boxed into. Russian troops captured a bridge leading to the Azovstal Combine on April 7th. And uh, the southern portion of the port of Mariupol was taken on April 8th. And I believe they actually took the fishing port of Mariupol today. Uh, those areas have seen the heaviest fighting in recent days, and they probably will continue to do so until they're fully captured by Russian units. Question number nine: Thoughts on Finland moving towards NATO currently? Um, well, I—that opinion isn't really mine to have. I'm not. I'm not Finnish. I mean. For any of you Finns out there, uh, if you feel like you want to weigh in, then please, by all means, do so. Um, I will say it makes sense for them to join NATO. Um, I do think personally that some moves that the United States and NATO made as the Soviet Union collapsed were uh, not the brightest moves. I don't think we should have expanded NATO uh, eastward as quickly as we did, as much as we did, that obviously provoked Russia, and I'm not justifying Russia's actions at all, but the actions that the U.S. and NATO in general took in the 90s and early 2000s obviously pissed them off and put them on edge. Now, with that being said, Russia part of Russia's justification for invading Ukraine is they do not want NATO encroachment on their borders, right? They already share a good part of their border with NATO countries. They don't want to share any more of it with NATO countries. They do not want Ukraine to join NATO, certainly. Um, Finland also borders Russia in the north. They are not a NATO country yet. I think Russia is obviously fearful of NATO expanding, but by invading Ukraine, they really gave... European nations that aren't a part of NATO they really gave them justification to go ahead and join NATO. Um and I'm sure Putin figured that that could happen once he invaded Ukraine. I'm sure he figured that would be a consequence, right? But um I mean at this point it looks counterproductive because now Russia could have more NATO nations on its border and that's obviously something it didn't want, but That looks like something that's gonna happen so long story short it makes sense for finland to join nato now yeah question number 10 why are the most sheltered the most bloodthirsty um i really i really can't answer that um i think that question's in relation to uh something i posted on instagram i've seen a good amount of people that are i mean basically praying for a war to break out between Russia and NATO. And I mean, you just know damn well that most people that want that sort of thing to happen just wouldn't have the guts to fight in that war if it did happen or even put on a uniform at the very least. So it's, it's a little ironic. Um, And I'm pretty sure that that question is in response to me posting that, but I really couldn't answer that. Um, I guess people that, uh, haven't witnessed death and destruction. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had an answer for that. Um, but I don't. Question number 11, how many people will put on uniforms? Yeah. Uh, answer. Not many. Um, it's just a fact of the matter. Most, if not the the vast majority of people that are, you know, asking for war between uh, NATO and Russia. They just wouldn't join up themselves. And that's unfortunate, but that's a reality. And I think we all know it. And last question, chances that Mariupol holds out or is reinforced from Kherson Oblast and For uh, the purposes of this question, I'll include uh, Mikulayev Oblast as well. Um, Short answer, not likely. Um, Any any, uh, reinforcements that would, I mean, come from any direction, they would have to fight through a lot of Russian-controlled territory to even get to the outskirts of Mariupol. And then once they're in Mariupol, they have to fight through... um, yeah they have to fight through a ton of russians in in any direction to even reach a unit of uh ukrainians that are holding out in mariupol it's just the chances are are not likely unfortunately and unless something drastically changes of course war is very unpredictable maybe uh mariupol gets liberated tomorrow who knows but yeah, at this point, not likely. Uh, Russians control a lot of territory in Mariupol and around Mariupol and in between Mariupol and Kherson, and make it live. And from Mariupol to the Russian border in the east, there's, there's just way too many units that you would have to fight through if you even want to get close to Mariupol. And yeah, unfortunately, it's just probably not going to happen. It's really a matter of days until Mariupol falls given the current situation again things could change but with things being how they are now um guess just a reality. I hope I'm wrong but I don't think I am. With that being said, that's all we got from questions. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. <music> Russia has had at least six generals confirmed or reported to have been killed in combat. Major General Andrei Sukhovetsky was killed in combat near Mariupol. He was a veteran of multiple wars, including the Russo Georgian War, the Syrian Civil War, and the annexation of Crimea. His death was confirmed by President Vladimir Putin. He commanded the 7th Guards Mountain Air Assault Division of the VDV and was the deputy commander of the 41st Combined Arms Army. Major General Vitaly Gerasimov was reportedly killed near Kharkiv. He was the chief of staff for the 41st Combined Arms Army and was a veteran of the 2nd Chechen War, the Syrian Civil War, and the annexation of Crimea as well. Major General Andrei Koznikov was reportedly killed as well. He commanded the 29th Combined Arms Army. Not much is known about his service other than the fact that he has served in the Russian ground forces from 1998 and took command of the 29th Army in December this past year. U.S. officials did confirm that three Russian generals had been killed at the time of his death, but no names were provided. Major General Oleg Mityev was reportedly killed in Mariupol on March 15th. He commanded the 150th Motorized Rifle Division. Lieutenant General Andrei Mordvichev was reportedly killed in an attack on the Russian-occupied Kherson International Airport. He commanded the 8th Guards Combined Arms Army. Lieutenant General Yakov Rezontsev was reportedly killed in that same attack on Kherson Airport. He commanded the 49th Combined Arms Army and had previously deployed to Syria at least once. All right, moving on to losses. The UN has acknowledged at least 1,800 civilians have been killed in Ukraine, while the Ukrainian government has said anywhere from 7,440 to 7,665 civilians have been killed. Of course, those numbers are hard to verify, but we do know that many, many civilians have been killed so far. And who knows, the the number can very well even be higher than uh, 7,600. Moving on to military losses for Russia, the Russian government has acknowledged at least 2,830 deaths among the Russian military and the militaries of Donetsk and Luhansk as well. While the Ukrainian government states that Russia has suffered... 19,300 losses. That includes both killed and wounded. The U.S. government estimates Russia has over 10,000 killed at this time. And for Russian personnel losses, these were all identified by Rob Lee on Twitter uh, using only Russian sources, which is great. Um, So obviously this is not an exhaustive list of all Russian casualties, but these are just the very least that we can verify. The GRU, that's the uh, main directorate for the uh, general staff of the Russian Armed Forces, they've lost 29 servicemen, four from the 2nd Spetsnaz Brigade, four from the 3rd Spetsnaz Brigade, uh, one from the 10th Spetsnaz Brigade, 12 from the 22nd Guard Spetsnaz Brigade, three from the 24th Spetsnaz Brigade, one from the 25th Spetsnaz Regiment, and one from the 346th Spetsnaz Brigade. Russian Aerospaces, we have six confirmed losses. Those are all pilots, all pilots of the Russian Air Force, and that includes a Deputy Regimental Commander and a SU-25 pilot who was killed in action. For the Russian Navy, we have at least uh, 50 confirmed deaths. Northern Fleet has six one from the 61st Naval Infantry Brigade. That was a colonel from the unit that was killed in action, and five from the 200th Arctic Motorized Rifle Brigade. Black Sea Fleet has suffered 22 deaths at least. Deputy Commanding Officer Captain First Rank Andre Polly was killed in action in Mariupol. We have four deaths from the 126th Coastal Defense Battalion, one from the 127th Reconnaissance Brigade, 15 from the 810th Naval Infantry Brigade. That includes the brigade's commanding officer, Colonel Alexei Sharov. He was killed in action in Mariupol. Also two from the 382nd Naval Infantry Brigade. Baltic Fleet has suffered six deaths, all from the 336th Guards Naval Infantry Brigade. Pacific Fleet has suffered 10 deaths, two from the 40th Naval Infantry Brigade, and seven from the 155th Guards Naval Infantry Brigade. Caspian Flotilla has suffered two deaths, one each from the 177th and the 414th Naval Infantry Brigades. Russian Ground Forces have suffered at least 68 deaths, Three from the 1st Guards Tank Army, two of those from the 2nd Guards Motorized Rifle Division, and one from the 4th Guards Tank Division. 20th Guards Combined Arms Army has suffered three deaths, one from the 3rd Motorized Rifle Division, and the commanding officer of the 252nd Motorized Rifle Regiment of that division was killed in action. His name was Colonel Igor Nikolaev. We have one death from the 144th Guards Motorized Rifle Division and one death from the 28th Motorized Rifle Brigade. 41st Combined Arms Army has suffered seven deaths. However, one of those is shared with the VDV 7th Air Assault Division. Keep that in mind. Three of those from the 90th Guards Tank Division. Uh, Six of those, I'm sorry, two of those from the 6th Tank Regiment including a battalion commander from that regiment, Colonel Alexander Zakharov, He was killed in action. Two deaths from the 74th Motorized Rifle Brigade and two from the 35th Motorized Rifle Brigade. Excuse me. Three deaths from the 35th Combined Arms Army. 15 deaths from the 36th Combined Arms Army. 14 of those have been from the 2nd Guards Tank Corps. And one of those is from the 37th Motorized Rifle Brigade. Three deaths from the 49th Combined Arms Army. That includes, of course, Army uh, Lieutenant General Yakov Rezantsev that we talked about earlier. And uh, the 34th Mountain Motorized Rifle Brigade has two deaths. The 58th Combined Arms Army has seven deaths, uh, two of those from the 42nd Guards Motorized Rifle Division, two from the 19th Motorized Rifle Division, and one from the 205th Motorized Rifle Brigade. Three deaths from the 29th Combined Arms Army, all three from the 36th Motorized Rifle Brigade. Uh, Five deaths from the 8th Guards Combined Arms Army. That includes their commanding general that we spoke about earlier. Two deaths from the twentieth Guards Motorized Rifle Brigade. Two deaths from the one hundred twenty seventh Motorized Rifle Division. One death from the thirty third Motorized Rifle Regiment. The regimental commander he was Colonel Yuri Garkov. He was killed in action. One from the fifteenth Peacekeeping Motorized Rifle Battalion. Sorry, Motorized Rifle Brigade. Uh, three from the twenty first Guards Motorized Rifle Brigade four from the 55th mountain motorized rifle brigade one from the 12th guards engineer brigade that was their commanding officer colonel sergey Paroknia. he was killed in action and one from the 40th engineer sapper regiment their chief of staff lieutenant colonel alexander Kornik. vdv has suffered at least 182 losses From the 7th Guards Mountain Air Assault Division, we have 57. 55 of those have been from the 247th Guards Air Assault Regiment, one from the 108th Guards Air Assault Regiment, and one from the 171st Independent Air Assault Battalion, their battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Sharashov. We have 17 from the 76th Guards Airborne Division, Five from the 83rd Air Assault Brigade, their Deputy Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Vitaliy Slapsov. Seven from the 31st Guards Air Assault Brigade, uh, the 1st Battalion's commanding officer, Major Alexei Osokin, was killed in action. From the 11th Guards Air Assault Brigade, we have 13, including Deputy Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Denis Glebov. He was confirmed killed in action. His death was announced on... March 2nd, and we have 50 from the 98th Guards Airborne Division, 43 of those alone from the 331st Guards Airborne Regiment. Their regimental commander, Colonel Sergei Sugaryev, was killed in action. We have 7 from the 217th Airborne Regiment. From the 106th Guards Airborne Division, we have 20 and from the 45th Spetsnaz Brigade, we have two. Roskvardia, which is the Russian National Guard, suffered 32 deaths, nine from the Separate Operational Purpose Division, uh, one from the 12th Spetsnaz Detachment, three from the 23rd Spetsnaz Detachment, one from the 33rd Independent Spetsnaz Detachment, and omoen Unit from Tuva has two deaths, OMON from Perm Permkrai has three, OMON from Yugra has one, another one from Kumi has one, another one from Vladivostok has two, another team from Volgograd has one, an SOBR unit from Volgada has two, SOBR unit from Olsk has two as well and an unknown guardia battalion commander was killed as well. The Donetsk People's Republic has had one death that we could identify. That's from the Sparta Separate Assault Battalion, Colonel Zhuga, which we have spoken about in previous episodes. For Ukraine, not uh, many specific confirmed losses of Ukrainian personnel are available. And like I said last time, if you guys have uh, any sources, any Ukrainian sources of confirmed Ukrainian losses, p- please uh, feel free to send them my way so I can update this list. Ukraine has acknowledged at least 1,300 of their servicemen have been killed, but that estimate is a month old, and those are uh, definitely downplayed. Um. Yeah, yeah, those are absolutely downplayed. The Russian government claims over 14,000 Ukrainian personnel have been killed, and the U.S. government estimates that... Two to 4,000 have been killed, but that estimate as well is a month old, so it's just very hard to tell right now. For the Ukrainian Air Force, we have identified uh, one pilot has been killed. He is from the 204th Tactical Aviation Brigade, the Brigades, I'm sorry, a Squadron Commander Major Yevgeny Lysenko. He was killed in action during a dogfight, and the Ukrainian Air Assault Forces has lost uh, dozens. But we really don't know exactly how many, just multiple dozens, were killed in a missile attack in western Ukraine. Visually confirmed equipment losses. That is destroyed, abandoned, captured for Russia. They have lost 456 tanks. Russia has lost enough tanks to fill five entire Russian tank regiments with a few left over. That's pretty crazy. Armored fighting vehicles, 289. Infantry fighting vehicles, 485. Armored personnel carriers, 95. Mine resistant armor protected vehicles, 21. Infantry mobility vehicles, think um, the equivalent of the U.S. Humvee, 90. Communication stations, 20. Artillery systems, 144. Anti-aircraft guns, 17. Multiple launch rocket systems, 48 surface-to-air missile systems, 51, radar and jamming stations, 16, fixed-wing aircraft or planes, 20, 19 of which have been combat aircraft, 32 helicopters, that is revised down from 34 previously, two naval ships, two logistics trains, and 779 other types of trucks. For Ukraine's losses, we have 98 tanks, 67 armored fighting vehicles, 79 infantry fighting vehicles, 33 armored personnel carriers, 50 infantry mobility vehicles, 55 artillery systems, 15 multiple launch rocket systems, 4 anti-aircraft guns, 38 surface-to-air missile systems, 17 radar and jamming systems. 15 fixed-wing aircraft, of which 13 were combat aircraft, three helicopters, 14 naval ships, and 216 other types of trucks. And uh, again, these are equipment losses that we can visually verify. So obviously the equipment losses are, I mean, just orders of magnitude higher than this. This is just what we know definitively. Um, but actually for this episode, we will not have an update on the order battle. I will save that for the next episode instead for time reasons. So with that, uh, that is actually all I have for you guys this week. So I want to thank you all for supporting us really means a lot. Of course, you could find us on your favorite apps, including Spotify, Google podcast, Apple podcast, anchor breaker, overcast. Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate. And that is all I have for you. We will see you guys next time.